Welcome to our newest Hearts Unite the Globe hug patrons. Annie Olchek, we sincerely appreciate your support. Thank you for joining our community and making a difference through Patreon. Judy Miller, thank you for being our first Buzzsprout supporter for Bereave But Still Me. Buzzsprout started a new program where you can actually support the podcast of your choice. There are so many ways you can support Hug. All you have to do is visit our website, heartsunitetheglobe.com, to see how you too can help empower, educate, and enrich the lives of individuals in the CHD and bereaved communities. Thank you all for your continued support. There is a specialist group called Intervention Cardiologists, and I was pleased to be a part of that. There were many others. I'm not the father. I'm just one of the many fathers, if you will, that helped pioneer this field. Welcome to another Saturday Success Story, a special Heart to Heart with Anna episode for our Heart Month, February 2022. I am Anna Jaworski and the host of this program. I'm also the mother of an adult child who was born with a single ventricle heart. That's why I am the host of your program. Who was the first person to close holes in the heart between the upper chambers? What exactly is interventional cardiology and why is it important? Today's episode is entitled The Making of a Louisiana Legend, and our guest is Dr. Terry King. Dr. Terry King completed his training in pediatrics and pediatric cardiology at the University of Texas, my alma mater, and Duke University. He started practicing in 1965, caring for children in the state of Louisiana. In 1975, Dr. King and Dr. Noel Mills invented the cardiac umbrella to close holes in the heart without surgery and was the first person to implant the device in humans. This technology forever changed how structural defects in the heart are repaired, both in children and adults. They were nominated for the Nobel Prize of Physiology in 1976. Dr. King considers the greatest responsibility you can give another person is the care of your child, and he has dedicated his life and work to educating others on this important journey. He has helped to build the capacity of scholars and researchers in the field, delivering lectures and establishing a pediatric symposium for health professionals. He has helped to establish neonatal and pediatric intensive care units in underserved areas of Louisiana to assist children with heart disease and their families who have no other means of receiving care. Welcome to Heart to Heart with Anna, Dr. King. It's such a pleasure, Anna, to be with you, and thank you for inviting me. I think this is a wonderful opportunity. Thank you so much. Oh, it's such a tremendous opportunity for me to have someone of your caliber on my program. So let's get started. I've never met anybody who invented a device like you have, so I can't wait to get there. But before we start talking about your umbrella device, I was amazed to see that you started working in pediatric cardiology in the 1960s. What attracted you to that field? Well, that's a very interesting question. At age eight, I asked God if he would help me be a physician. I would always give my very best. So with that as a background, I went to college at the University of Texas, your alma mater, my alma mater, where I ran track. I worked with my uncle in Shreveport, Louisiana as an entomologist. I became 
sidetracked for a few years thinking I might end up in entomology. But when I was working on my master's program, a professor of mine suggested I look at a movie about the heart lung machine, which was pretty embryonic in those days. And I was hooked. I was going to go to medical school and I thought I'd be a heart surgeon. I went to Galveston to the University of Texas medical branch. So the first summer there, I worked in the cath lab with Dr. Lynn Harris, the pediatric cardiologist at the medical school here. And I was even more hooked and I was convinced that I was going to be a pediatric cardiologist. And that started me on the road to becoming one. So you said you knew you wanted to be a doctor at age eight. Had you had something traumatic happen to you? No, I grew up on a ranch in South Texas, near Highlands, Texas, and my father rented it from a Dr. Marshall, and he would come out to the ranch periodically, and of course, it was very entertaining for an eight-year-old young man to hear the stories of being a physician, and I was just enamored with that, and it never left me. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. That's amazing. Most people don't know what they want to do when they're that age, or if they do... Typically for a boy, they want to be an astronaut or a fireman. (laughs) So for you to know that you want to be a doctor and then to follow through with it is just amazing. You got into pediatric cardiology when it was very new. It was a very young field. Can you tell me about the diagnostic tools that you had at that time? Because my son was born in the 1990s, a couple decades after you got into it. And I remember the tools that they used for Alexander were just X-rays, EKGs, and echoes, and that was it. So it was much more embryonic than that, Anna. (laughs) I'll tell you. To give you some idea how long I've been doing this, when I obtained my subboards of pediatric cardiology and received my certificate that I passed the exam, I was number 378 in the whole United States. My partner, who is much younger than I am, is number 2,600. And so it's a small group of people to start with, but it was very small back in the 50s and 60s and 70s. So the tools we had, some of which you became familiar with, were chest x-rays, EKG machines, EKG tracing, the stethoscope, of course, and catheterization was very, very embryonic. It was not necessarily a benign procedure. It was fairly safe, but there were risks to Real difference is there were no echoes, no MRI, no CT. There was no genetic testing, and there was minimal drugs for treatment of congenital heart disease because everything had been geared towards the adult. And they're not small, big people. You have to have an entirely different approach to the child who has congenital heart disease. And depending on how you want to classify congenital heart disease, there's as many as a thousand different types or varieties of congenital heart disease. If you group them into groups, there'll be less, but there'll be still a significant number of congenital heart defects. Wow, you just said a much bigger number than what I've read before. I had heard there were 42. So that's because of all the different combinations, right? Yes. You mentioned single ventricle, but there's umpteen different types of single ventricles, depending on how you classify them, 18 or 20, as you know. Oh, yeah. I don't know that I've ever met another person whose single ventricle diagnosis is an exact replica of what my son has. Most of them have a combination of defects. Right, right. 
a thousand. I hadn't really thought about it, but that does make so much sense. But I can't even imagine having such primitive tools for diagnosis. And even blood work that was done in the 1960s, I'm sure was very different than the blood panels that you can order today. Absolutely. For example, I went in 1978 behind the Iron Curtain to Krakow, Poland, along with Bill Norwood, which you will be familiar with that name, Dr. Norwood, the Norwood Procedure. He was the surgeon. I was a cardiologist. We had nurses from Portsmouth, Maine, and anesthesiologists from Peter Brigham in Boston, Massachusetts. We used the stethoscope, the chest X-ray, and the history examination to operate on a lot of children when I was in Krakow, Poland. We didn't even do heart casts because we could only do two heart casts a day with very antiquated type of equipment. But it can be done, but it's just not perfect to do it that way, of course. You're taking a chance anytime you do a catheterization. Even with all the wonderful diagnostic tools you have today, still something could happen. At least that's what we're told when we have to sign the paperwork (laughs) with all the different possible complications. The heart cath has passed tremendously over 53 years in cardiology and almost 13,000 procedures. I only had six deaths and they were all very complex heart disease. So it's a lot safer than when it was being done in the early 60s, but it still carries some risk and you need to be appraised of what the risks are. Right. Absolutely. So what was the biggest challenge that you faced in the 60s and 70s? Was it not having the diagnostic equipment to be able to give you a clear picture of the heart? Yeah, I think the real problem was everything had been developed for the adults. And again, they are not adults and their physiology and their defects are different. Yes, adults have congenital heart disease, and we'll talk about that later. But we didn't have the equipment to really make the best diagnosis. We had various types of x-ray equipment and things like that, but my first cities were eight millimeter film and now we're digital. We didn't have the right size casters. There's this big difference between a 150 pound male and a three pound baby. And so there was a lot of technology that had to be developed that miniaturized our equipment. We had to think about temperatures in the room. We could get a cold baby and cause damage there. So it was a big difference between the adults and the children. And a lot of those things had to be conquered to make the hard cast as safe as it is today. But we just had to develop the equipment, the casters, the expertise, train people to know how to react to children in a much different way than adults. Dr. Terry King, in addition to helping children, I understand that you've been very active in research. What do you feel is your most significant contribution to research? Well, it's been multifaceted. In my opinion, I did critical care medicine on top of cardiology, and I did neonatology on top of cardiology because it was so underserved in the state of Louisiana. So, We had to help develop intensive care units, neonatal intensive care units, pediatric intensive care units, and in cath labs. When I came from Oxford to Monroe, Louisiana, we had to develop all of those services that could allow us to take care of smaller children. The infant mortality in Northeast Louisiana was one of the highest in the nation. And after about a five to six year period, we cut that in half with the advent of intensive care units. And then the other thing to develop is the equipment, the catheters, devices, 
on the cardiology side to maybe circumvent the aspects of open heart surgery, maybe cut down the lengths of stay and keep the cost down. And then we had to also help participate in research in terms of things like hypertension, other things like cofactors like L-carnitine. It's a cofactor for heart muscle and skeletal muscle disorders. So I've been involved in things like that over the decades. Some not cardiac and others very much cardiac. Night Forever by the Baby Blue Sound Collective. I think what I love so much about this CD is that some of the songs were inspired by the patients. Many listeners will understand many of the different songs and what they've been inspired by. Our new album will be available on iTunes, Amazon.com, Spotify. I love the fact that the proceeds from this CD are actually going to help those with congenital heart defects. Enjoy the music. Home Tonight Forever. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. You are listening to Heart to Heart with Anna. If you have a question or comment that you would like addressed on our show, please send an email to Anna Jaworski at Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. That's Anna at hearttoheartwithanna.com. Now, back to Heart to Heart with Anna. Well, you've been coined the father of interventional cardiology, but some of my listeners may not know what interventional cardiology is. So can you explain that? I'd be glad to. First off, I'm just one of many people that have been pioneers in this field. Dr. Rashkin and Miller developed the balloon septostomy in the late 60s. Portsmouth in the late 60s, early 70s, developed a way of plugging off the patent ductus arteriosus, the connection outside the heart, which is primarily a difficulty for the infants. And then us in the early 70s, we attacked all three of those. We developed devices for closing ASDs, VSDs, and patent ductus arteriosus. Initially, pediatric cardiologists were diagnosticians and didn't have much to do with intervening in the structural aspects other than the medical management. So the field of interventional cardiology deals with the diagnosis and the treatment all in one fell swoop. So now there is a specialist group called interventional cardiologists, and I was pleased to be a part of that. There were many others. I'm not the father. I'm just one of the many fathers, if you will, that helped pioneer this field. One of the things that I find fascinating about interventional cardiology is you're kind of like a surgeon, but you don't have to cut open people. <laughs> <laughs> That's the best part. <laughs> yes, I imagine. Yeah. So when we did our first case, her name was Suzette Capel, and she's well-known through the medical literature, so it's not a HIPAA violation to talk about her. We didn't really know for sure, A, was it going to be permanent? How well was it going to work? And was the device going to move or was it going to come unlatched? And so on and so on. And we certainly didn't know, because of one case, the impact 
But in my interview with NBC News, I said, I think we'll cut the hospital stay by about 50% and the cost, some number like that also. And the NBC Nightly News program closed with a statement, and I don't think I made this, but they said Dr. King and Dr. Mills thought this was going to be safe enough to do as an outpatient procedure or something to that effect. Well, it was more prophetic than I was because today it is an outpatient procedure to do what I did years ago. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, heart surgery required in those days about a 10-day stay in the hospital. So you come in and get your device and uh, depending on where it is and what you had to do, make it to go home that day or the next morning. Wow. So the young lady that you were talking about, she was the first recipient of your umbrella device, right? Correct. That was for an ASD or a hole between the top two chambers of the heart. Is that correct? That's correct. So what made her the ideal candidate for this device? They had to be screened psychologically because this was never, never land. It was unknown. Right. Uh, and two, uh, she did not want to have, uh, and she said this, and I quote, I don't want to have my chest cracked open. <laughs> Quotation marks closed. And that's intriguing because when I was thinking about this, remember I said that about girls not wanting a sternotomy scar. Well, she didn't want that scar. Sure. Secondly, she was a very... Just about finished my autobiography, and I have a chapter called Heroes One It All. And these people were really heroes. To go through something like that, and nobody's ever done it, much less has a patient ever had it. And they were just unbelievably brave, in my opinion. They were just unbelievably brave. The first five in the world that did this plowed the ground for the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people now that have this as a routine procedure. It just amazes me that she was willing to be the very first person. I saw a picture of her in a newspaper article that I found online, and it looked to me like she was a young woman. Was she already of majority age? No, she was 17. The first five patients, the first was 17, was Suzette. And then there was a young man from Palo Alto, California. He was 17, and he had a stroke while playing tennis, and they found a hole at UCLA and flew him to Oxford. Third one was a man by the name of Barton, who was 44 years old, and he was just exhausted, and he had found to have ASD. We fixed his hole. And the fifth one was a lady from Pennsylvania who had had prior heart surgery, and she didn't want to go back through it. And the fifth one was a 75-year-old male from Miami, Florida. So they came for various reasons, all from all over the United States. And various ages. I mean, all the way from 17, all the way up into their 70s. Yes, correct. Now, And you could use the same device regardless. Yeah, but we couldn't go down. One of the drawbacks was that our device uh, was made with the current materials that were available. We needed some way to, A, center the device so we could use a smaller device and put it in and wouldn't have to use two times the diameter. And we wanted something that we could retract if it wasn't in the right position. I had to get these devices in exactly the right position or they had to go to surgery. God was with us and they all did well. But so now that's all changing. We'll probably talk about that a little later, but there's all sorts of new things out there now. Yeah, it is amazing. I was looking at it this morning, as a matter of fact, and I found an article online that just showed 
one illustration after another of different closure devices. But we will talk about that a little bit later in the program. Right now, I'm wondering if you can share this story about how you found out you may have been nominated for the Nobel Prize in Physiology for your work. Can you tell us about that experience? Sure. So who knows they've been nominated? The nominators are not supposed to tell anybody. So the fact that you hear you've been nominated, you probably want to be a little suspicious of it. But anyway, I was given a lecture in 1975. There were a group of about 300 physicians from Texas that traveled around. Apparently, they did this once a year. They traveled places like the Oxford Clinic, the Mayo Clinic, the Scott and White Clinic, and things like that, various places to get updated what's happening in medicine. And I lectured about our research because we distanced the first humans. And at the end of the lecture, a gentleman stood up in the audience and he said that this wants y'all to know that Dr. King was nominated for the Nobel Prize. And I thought that's kind of strange. First off, it's pretty soon. And secondly, we don't have enough information. But it turns out that there may have been somebody at the clinic that was actually on the nominating committee. He's now deceased, so I can't verify this. But at any rate, that's the rumor for what it's worth. And I've gotten letters from people all over the world and friends who said we should get the Nobel Prize. But that's not the important thing. What's the really important thing is that we were able to make a difference for children and adults and avoid a whole lot of pain and cut the expenses down and cut the lengths to stay down and still give them a healthy aspect for life with a whole lot less trouble. Oh, absolutely. You have no idea how many people you helped mentally not having to go through the trauma of an open heart surgery. There's so many more opportunities for infection and complications. You did an amazing job with what you have done. And I really enjoyed watching the PBS special that they did where they showed how you have become a Louisiana legend. Can you tell me about that experience? Well, I was floored with that because they only take five people a year since 1990, five people from Louisiana who have contributed to the welfare and the community and the people of Louisiana and more ways than one, depending on the nominee. And my wife said to me one day, we, we're going to have dinner with the kids in Monroe. Well, it wasn't unusual. It was on a Sunday, and that came, and we drove to Monroe, and I wasn't thinking anything about it. I got there, and I, everybody in the family was there, and then there were some other people there. A friend of mine who was a retired Supreme Court Justice of Louisiana, and his daughter, Therese Nagin, was there. And I thought this was just a big gathering. And my daughter-in-law said, it's about time for our meal. At which point, Therese Nagin said, I've got an announcement to make. And I thought she was going to announce that she was going to run for office. we got a lot of politicians in Louisiana. So I thought she was going to be one of them. And she said, I want to tell you, I'm on the nominating committee of the Louisiana LPP and friends for the Louisiana legends. And we picked five people a year since 1990 to receive this award. They include astronauts, delegates to the United Nations, famous football players, governors, a lot of people, philanthropists. And she said the nominees this year are a lady that her family formed uh, Midsy Coffee, and she's a philanthropist. Another one was Mrs. Toon, who was the first woman director of NASA, the first African-American to be the superintendent of the Louisiana State Police. 
And then there was a famous football player by the name of Johnny Robinson, whom I knew. He was All-American LSU and All-Pro for 11 or 12 years. They were the first four. And then she said, and it's our own Dr. Terry King. And I nearly fell out when she said that. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I was really, truly honored to be in that company. And there are many other fantastic people who have done such great things for our state. They had a ceremony which was prolonged because of COVID, but this past May they had it. And they hold it in the old state capitol, which is a gorgeous building. And I have to say, they did a magnificent job. And I tell you, that will remain in my heart until my death. It was an incredible event and an incredible honor to be included with such wonderful people. They did such a beautiful job of getting photographs of you at various ages and talking to your son. Your son did a lovely job in the interview with the PBS special that they did. That must have touched your heart so much just to see how many different people you had influenced and had so many lovely things to say about you. Well, I was grateful to say the least. And, uh, you know, your life is made up of all of those around you who really contributed to who you become. And I've been so lucky and with God's help, been able to make a little difference with all of this wonderful guidance and help I've had through my life. This content is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The opinions expressed in the podcast are not those of Hearts Unite the Globe, but of the hosts and guests, and are intended to spark discussion about issues pertaining to congenital heart disease or bereavement. Anna Jaworski has written several books to empower the congenital heart defect, or CHD, community. These books can be found at Amazon.com or at her website, www.babyheartspress.com. Her bestseller is The Heart of a Mother, an anthology of stories written by women for women in the CHD community. Anna's other books, My Brother Needs an Operation, The Heart of a Father, and Hypoplastic Left Heart Syndrome, a handbook for parents, will help you understand that you are not alone. Visit babyheartspress.com to find out more. Heart to Heart with Anna is a presentation of Hearts Unite the Globe and is part of the Hug Podcast Network. Hearts Unite the Globe is a nonprofit organization devoted to providing resources to the congenital heart defect community to uplift, empower, and enrich the lives of our community members. If you would like access to free resources pertaining to the CHD community, please visit our website at www.congenitalheartdefects.com for information about CHD, the hospitals that treat children with CHD, summer camps for CHD survivors, and much, much more. Dr. King, over the last decade or so, there seems to be even more attention on the care of adults with congenital heart defects. What do you think about the new accreditation for cardiologists specializing in working with adults with CHDs? I think it's great. Those of us that have been in the field for the last five, six decades initially had to take care of whatever we got as a baby. And I still take care of patients that are 15 years old in my practice. But it makes it hard to do that because we don't have the background for the adult aspects of the patients for the patient's age. This come on in the last decade or so. And when they get in their 20s or so, I graduate them on to adult congenital doctors that are trained in both aspects. And it's a wonderful adjunct and it improves the care. And if there's a success story in pediatric cardiology, 
it is that there are more adults alive today with congenital heart disease than there are children. So these individuals are going to be very busy because they're going to get more and more patients because the technology and the care we can give them have led to so many more people who are surviving in second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth decades. Yes, it's very rewarding to me to see how medical science seems to keep a step ahead of what my son has needed. That's been a huge relief because things seem to be changing so fast. Even in the 27 years, I've become aware of pediatric cardiology. Well, it certainly is. I've given lectures, for example, in Ecuador or Argentina or Miami, Florida, and conferences, which the last one I did was in Miami about thinking out of the box. And the title of the meeting was Disruptive Thinking. It was all about thinking out of the box. You may get a lot of heat for this and some opposition, but that's where great strides are made. When somebody has a really ingenious idea, and if it's not the norm, there's going to be some opposition, but you just have to stay the course. You have to know in your heart it's the right thing to do. And I knew that when we did the cardiac umbrellas, and we took some criticism for that because heart surgery was very safe. It was 2%, but 80% of ASDs plus or minus, are now closed all over the world with devices, not heart surgery. Right. And that wouldn't probably have been the case had you not been doing what you did in the 1970s. Well, a lot of people said that, but let me tell you, somebody was going to do this, and it is so happened we were the first to do it, but there were a lot of bright people, and a lot of my colleagues that are interventional cardiologists, Everybody was probably thinking this in the back of their mind. Some people were probably afraid to say anything about it because everything was going so well. But I just knew that if certain things that we could do with a catheter, why couldn't we fix holes? And I just knew it could be done. And with the help of Dr. Mills and the Oxford Clinic and God, it happened. So I think there'll be other great strides coming forth. So you're actual umbrella device wasn't used for terribly long. What was the natural progression? I alluded to this earlier. We couldn't center the device and we couldn't retract the device. In other words, you couldn't push it out and pull it back in. What really changed it, it took about 15 years for technology to catch up. So in the 80s, people began to try different things, but they were quite similar to what we were doing. But in the 60s, actually, people discovered metals with memory, nitinol, for example. It was discovered at a naval experimental station in Virginia. And nitinol is the combination of titanium and nickel metals that are pliable. And you can push them out and then pull them back. And they always assume the position when they are not under pressure. So they call metals with memory. And that really changed the ball game where we got that. And that led to the Amplaster device the Helix device, and there are others out there. I wrote a chapter in a textbook about ASD and PFOs about 10 years ago, and there were about 16 devices around the world. All of them are double umbrellas. The concept's the same, but the materials are different. I remember when Alexander was little, they made a big deal about clamshell devices, and then all of a sudden there was the Amplatzer, and it seems like that was in the news all the time, Amplatzer, Amplatzer. And I think that replaced the clamshell devices for popularity. Is that true? 
Yeah, there were other devices. All of them are double umbrellas. The clamshell is not a clamshell. It's a double umbrella, but they were trying to get around the patent, and they called it a clamshell. But it was made out of wire and two umbrellas, but it had the same problems we had. It couldn't center itself. And then the other problem that we have not had, those wires fractured on the clamshell device. Mm-hmm. And, and there were other devices in there. If you get a chance, I can send you the name of the book and you can look at all the devices and look at the history because I covered all of that history for up to about 1995. Somewhere in there, maybe a little later. But the real breakthrough was things like night and all that had memory and they could expand or they could be retracted. But yet when re-exposed, they went back to the original shape so that they could be used. And they looked like double umbrellas. They're just hooked up already. Amazing. Amazing. So how many surgeries did you actually do with your and Dr. Mills umbrella device? The first five went without a hitch. We had a lady that came from Nebraska that I thought the defect was too big. You got to remember, we didn't have echo. So the husband, he was a physician, and he said, please try. If we didn't work, we'll go to surgery. We tried, and it was too big, so we just operated on her. And there was another similar one like that. We knew that we had to figure out how to have something that could self-center and wouldn't have to be as big. These newer materials have been just monumental in changing what we can do today. Yeah, it sounds like it. If you were to make a prediction, what do you see on the horizon regarding interventional cardiology? Well, we started with holes and we've had balloons to make the valve doors open, but now we're putting valves inside the heart with catheters, avoiding replacement of the aortic valve, the pulmonary valve, the tricuspid valve, the mitral valve. So that's going to go forth with a great deal of thicker because it looks quite successful. And a lot of technologies being applied to the extreme variations of replacement of valves with the aorta, the pulmonary artery is way too big to put the current valves in. They're developing expanding devices that will actually expand out much bigger diameters and allow you to put a valve in them. So you're going to see much more of that. I think in terms of other aspects, which are very exciting to me, is the genetic aspects that have been done in congenital heart disease and a lot of other diseases over the last several decades. And this is really far-fetched, but I think I've earned the right to say far-fetched things may be possible. I think we will see sometime, not my lifetime, but in the future where they will determine, as we do now, that you have a defect of your heart quite early. And maybe we can do something with genetic engineering to correct a defect in utero. I don't think that's out of the ballpark. It sounds like craziness, but that's what I was told with the umbrellas too. Yeah, I don't think you're crazy at all. I just went to a dinner last night, a virtual dinner for a company called HeartWorks. And this is exactly what they're talking about doing, actually curing congenital heart disease. They're already doing and I'm sure you're probably already well aware of this, but maybe not all of my listeners are, they're already doing research with stem cells. They're doing research with bioengineered cells. This makes me so excited. Yes. Well, the University of Minneapolis is now developed in the sheep model of valve that you put in a lamb and it grows to be adult size. That's going to be a gigantic step forward 
when you don't have to replace the valve so many times. So the answer, I think a lot of this is really going to become pretty standard methods of treating patients. And the Austin group has worked on the mitral valve taking stem cells and having a trellis like a mitral valve and generating a valve on the trellis. I think those sorts of things, I would foresee that when you're bored, you take your cord blood, you store it, you freeze it. Mm -hmm. And when you're older, you'll take the stem cell from your cord blood and use that to make another organ, your liver, a new valve, new heart, whatever. I think that may come. Something that far-fetched may be actually possible, I think. I know it sounds like science fiction, but Walt Disney's quote comes to mind where he says, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. And I really believe that these, you say far-fetched. I don't believe they're far-fetched. I believe they really could happen. Well, certainly some of this is happening now, today, as you've already alluded to. And I just picked up a notice that there's a new pulmonary valve out there that will expand for these patients that we don't have a valve large enough to put it in with the catheter. They have to have heart surgery. So, yes, I agree with you. If you can dream it up and you're really sincere with your dream, I bet it is possible. Well, I like the fact that you talk to God and you ask for God's help because I think we can do anything with God's help. Well, I don't think there's any doubt in that. I was asked in a follow-up to the Louisiana legend, and they asked me, what's the single most important thing in your life? And I said simply one word, God. I think without him, none of this would have happened. Yeah, I agree. Well, I hate that this is coming to a close, but I do have one last question, and that is, what advice do you have for parents of children with congenital heart defects so that they can live a quality life? That's a very good question. And I think, first off, we need to be optimistic. We need to believe that we're going to give them the life that they deserve and work towards that goal. Secondly, I think just healthy living, not like we're doing today. We're not living very healthy today. And I think healthy living has to be really much more front and center with our daily lives. And I think following the checkups are really important because things change. If you wait too long, you might not be able to do what would be much simpler if you stayed ahead of the issue. And two, technology is changing so fast, you want to make sure that you're on the cutting edge of knowing that that's happening and your child may benefit from that knowledge that there's Mm -hmm. new materials and procedures or things available for your child. The other thing that I think we really need to be more active. The children today, I'm a little afraid of what's happening with the cell phones and the TVs and the screen times. I'm a little worried about that because we're seeing too many children having weight issues and they want to game to the wee hours of the morning. And I think we need to pay attention some of these social things that maybe if we alter them will also help our children. I agree with you. I think we're finally at a stage in humanity where we're paying more attention to mental health. And I think it's long overdue, whether it's a cell phone, a tablet, or a computer. Spending too much time in front of any of those screens isn't good for you. I remember when we used to go outside and play a pickup game of baseball with our neighbors. You just don't see people doing that anymore. No, you're absolutely correct. And then there's data coming out about the blue lights with these screens. It alters the production of melatonin, which is your sleep hormone. 
And then you can't sleep at night. You hear these kids say, I can't sleep at night. Well, there's some reasons that they may not sleep at night. One may be that. Other thing, the stress that's going on in the world today, I think it's a combination of things. But this is not something we can't change. In fact, it'd be a lot easier to change some of these things we're doing socially than it would to be developing devices, which are very hard to do. Right. I agree with you. I think the first step for any of these changes is just acknowledging that there needs to be a change. Don't you think so, doctor? I agree. I agree, Anna. hundred percent. I agree. Recognize them and then do something about it. Right. Well, that was all very good practical advice and not even anything that is difficult to do. It's just, we have to raise our awareness of it and go take a walk with your family, go play with the dog, go throw a baseball to your friend and do a pickup game of baseball and stop looking at artificial stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Look at the real things around us. <laughs> this has been completely delightful. Dr. King, thank you so much for coming on my program. It's been my pleasure. Good luck. And if I can do anything to help you, please let me know. I absolutely will. Well, friends, that does conclude this episode of Heart to Heart with Anna. Thanks for listening today. Don't forget that if you found this podcast helpful, you can become a patron of our program with Patreon. Just go to our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash heart to heart. And remember, my friends, you are not alone. Thank you again for joining us this week. We hope you have become inspired and empowered to become an advocate for the congenital heart community. Heart to Heart with Anna with your host, Anna Jaworski, can be heard at any time, wherever you get your podcasts. A new episode is released every Tuesday from noon Eastern time.